good morning. Good to see you here today. We have a number of people missing this morning. We've got uh, junior high students at uh, Super Summer and their counselors. We have uh, 12 or 15 people perhaps that have gone to the funeral for Brother Joey McLaughlin. Uh, Joey passed away really suddenly on Monday. His funeral is today at 1 o'clock in Hope. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 7. I apologize for my voice. It seems to be coming and going this weekend. <coughs> to reiterate what Michael said, we will be having breakfast for the men next Sunday morning. The world has BYOB, bring your own bottle. Or ours is BYOB, bring your own bacon. You can bring me some while you're at it. Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 11 in just a moment. Remember that the letter to whom this is written are converts to Christianity from Judaism. They are now under intense persecution. And as a result of that, they are faced with the temptation to slip back into their former religious practices, either to escape persecution or because of a faulty understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. So the writer of this letter has endeavored throughout it to show the superiority of Christ and his new covenant that he has established. The first thing I want us to look at this morning is the deficiency of the old priesthood. Verse 11 says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest would come, rise up according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? The comparison of the old and the new covenant. We could also say the comparison between the old and the New Testament. Uh, begins with a conditional clause and a rhetorical question. Let me read that again for you in a new modern translation. It says, so if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection that God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron. <clears throat> now the term Levitical priesthood simply describes the Jewish priesthood of the Old Testament. It is called Levitical because most of the instructions from the Old Testament about the priesthood are found in the book of Leviticus. The Old Testament priesthood is the priesthood associated with the law of Moses. And the priesthood of Melchizedek is associated with Abraham, not with Moses. Now, God never intended for the Levitical priesthood to remain forever. And nowhere in Scripture is that idea taught. The Old Testament, in fact, anticipated that another priesthood was coming. The psalmist says in Psalm 100 and verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Here in the inspired words of the King, King David, the existing priesthood was weighed and found wanting. And one is named to eventually take its place. That does not mean that the Levitical priesthood was completely ineffective, but that it never was intended to be permanent. It was intended to foreshadow something that would come later that was greater. If the Levitical priesthood could have brought this perfection, and by perfection here, we mean could have brought access to God or salvation, if you want, why would God have provided another priesthood? They no longer needed a picture of salvation for they had the reality of salvation. The need for a new priesthood indicates that the old priesthood could not itself accomplish the salvation to which it pointed. We can look at its limitations. It would never atone for sin. The Levitical sacrifices only covered sin, but it did not remove it. Later, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 4 and 11, says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. This was only a temporary covering of sin, not the removal of sin, nor the guilt associated with it. In his letter to the church at Galatia, the apostle Paul says something very important about the Old Testament law. Galatians chapter three in verses 24 and 25, we read, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Paul uses an illustration that would have been very familiar uh, to the people that he was speaking to. It was called the child guardian. We miss the point because tutor in the <clears throat> is a somewhat misleading translation to us today because what we associate with the term tutor. The Greek word is pedagogues. It is a guardian, a guide of boys. Among the Greek and the Romans, this name was applied to a trustworthy slave who was charged with the duty of supervising the life and the morals of a boy belonging to the better class. The boys were not allowed it so much as to step outside the home without them being with them until they arrived at the age of adulthood. Once he re received ma maturity, he would no longer need a guardian, but he did not cast aside all the lessons that he had learned from that guardian, but he was no longer under the authority of that garden. That is our relationship to the law that's found in the Old Testament. We don't cast aside the principles it contains, but we don't live under the law. The, Mar the reformer Martin Luther said, when the law drives you to the point of despair. Let it drive you a little further. Let it drive you straight into the arms of Jesus 
who says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But we need to understand what it means when the Bible talks about perfection. Often in Scripture, when we see the word perfection, it has the meaning maturity or completeness. So assume here that perfection means completeness in relation to God. But actually the meaning here is more specialized. And it means to put someone in a position that they can come and stand before God. It's talking about access to God. These verses present us with one of the thorniest theological matters in the scripture. And that is the question of how are we as New Testament believers supposed to relate to the Old Testament law? Specifically debated is the fourth commandment about the Sabbath keeping. Some hold that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Others point out that the other nine commandments are repeated in the New Testament, all of them except for the Sabbath command. Some theologians divide the law of Moses into three categories, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. But those are only true to a great degree, but the truth is there is no biblical distinction found in the word of God in those three distinctions. In fact, the Jews saw the law as a unity. In the New Testament, God's standard of righteousness, <clears throat> he reaffirms the law, not decreases them, much less does away with them. If adultery and stealing and lying and coveting were wrong under the Old Testament, they are also wrong under the New Testament. Jesus did not set aside the morals found in the Old Testament. Rather, he strengthened them. But the ceremonial law, the Levitical system of sacrifices had been put aside. The qualifications for a priest were strictly physical. It was not demanded that they have an outstanding character, an unmatched life of accomplishments, a certain degree of education, or even exhibit spiritual devotion. A priestly candidate had to do two, three things. Number one, he had to be of legitimate birth. Number two, he had to be, <clears throat> he had to be a Levite, meaning that his mother had to be an Israelite and his father had to have been a priest before him. And number three, he could have no physical defects. And according to the law, there are about a hundred different ways that you could be disqualified on the spiritual, on the physical descent. But there is a change that is needed. For the priesthood, verse 12, being changed of necessity, also a change of the law. Change here means to put one thing in the place of another. Because the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament and the law of Moses were so closely tied together, a changed or replaced priesthood also meant a changed law. Christianity, in a sense, comes out of Judaism. 
But Christianity doesn't just enhance Judaism. It replaces it. The point is that there was a need for a new priesthood. This indicated that the old priesthood could not in itself accomplish the salvation to which it pointed. The same is true in our day. An outward set of rules may point you in the right direction. However, they offer no power, no change of heart, no motivation to change us. So what is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New? What is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, the Old Covenant worked externally by the law and therefore was unable to help people to uphold their end of the relationship. Under the administration of the New Covenant comes the miracle of regeneration. New hearts to make new people eager to do God's will. This was never offered under the Old Covenant, which explains its weakness, its uselessness for actually working salvation. From the insufficiency of the old priesthood, we move to the perfection of the new priesthood. Verse 15 says, and is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest. <clears throat> the Greek language is much more descriptive than English. There are two words for another in Greek. There is alos, which means another of the same kind. That word is used in verse 15, however, is different. It is the word heteros, and it means another of a different kind. Under the old covenant, there were many priests, and they were all the same. But under the new covenant, there is but one priest, and he is entirely different from those who came before him. There is a change of qualification for the priesthood. It says in verse 15, second half of it, there arises a new priest. There arises another priest who has come and according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Both verse 11 and verse 15 speak of another priest arising. And I think that word is significant because I believe it <clears throat> speaks of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Jesus' priesthood is not based on the law it is or heredity. It is based upon the power of God. He says in verse 17, you will be a priest forever. You will be a priest forever could only be said of the Messiah. Levitical priests ministered in the temple on a temporary and repetitive basis. They were, they were mortal. So when they died, their sons took their place. They were also sinful. So they had to always offer sacrifices for themselves before they were qualified to offer them for the people. The sacrifices themselves had only a certain temporary effectiveness and had to be repeated and repeated and repeated. 
There is a new order in verse 18. For on, for on the one hand, there is a nulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. But the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The problem with the Old Testament was not the law. The problem was that the people were not able to keep the law. The prophet Jeremiah revealed that God had promised a new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31 and 32 say, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, long before the coming of Jesus, the old order was recognized as transitional, temporary, and insufficient. Saying in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect, is an acknowledgement that the law, although valuable as it was, shows us God's perfect standard, but it does nothing to help us to reach that standard. It was not ever intended to be the base of, of man's walk and relationship with God. The law does a great job of setting forth God's perfect standard, but it does not give us the power to keep those standards. The old system could reveal sin. It could even cover sin in a certain way and a certain temporary degree, but it could never remove the sin. And so itself had to be replaced. The law did not give a better hope. The law did not provide that we could draw near to God. Therefore, the law was annulled, set aside, in the sense that it no longer was the dominating principle of our life, especially in our access to God. The writer goes on to say in verse 19, on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. In Christ, everything that was found lacking in the law finds fulfillment in Christ. In Christ, we find security and peace and access to God. I think the uh, apostle Peter was obviously overcome with that principle and he wrote with great excitement in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. They were told that their message was not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached it in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. From the perfection of the new priesthood, we move to the greatness of the new priest in verse 20. 
And inasmuch as they were not made priests without an oath, for they had become priests without an oath, but he was sworn, he was with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Pay special attention now to verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety for a better covenant. Jesus has become a guarantee of a better covenant. The word that's translated surety describes someone who gave security, someone who co-signed for a loan to guarantee a payment or put up bail to get someone out of jail. There is a wonderful illustration of how Christ guarantees this new covenant. It's found in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 43, verses 8 and 9, it says, Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him, same word, for my hand you will require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now you remember a famine was going on in the land. Finally, because there was no food available, Israel sent his sons to the land of Egypt to try to secure some food. Little did they understand that Joseph, the brother they had sold into slavery, was now the prime minister of Egypt. And it was he that they would have to deal with. While they went down to Egypt to secure some food, and all of them went except for the baby of the family, Benjamin. He gave them some food and sent them back home, but he said, if you want any more food, you must bring Benjamin to me. Judah reported to his father that the Egyptian they were dealing with demanded that if they wanted more food, they're going to have to bring Benjamin. And he said, no, it ain't going to happen. No way, no how. I've already lost one son, Joseph. I'll not lose another. Benjamin stays at home. Jacob says, well, he's not going to give us any more food unless Benjamin comes. Therefore, he says, I'll be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. You see, he guarantees the promise that he will return with Benjamin. He stands as a surety for that promise. Jesus himself is the guarantee to us of a better new covenant. He is the co-signer that guarantees it on our behalf. The new covenant depends on what Jesus did, not on what you do. The one offering of surety, he brings and offers his goods and even himself in order these things might be brought to pass. This is the end of the story. As long as Jesus lives, and we know he lives forever, right? He will bring it 
to pass. He is the very son of the living God, the one who died and yet death could not hold him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for what Jesus did for us. That he stands as the guarantee that what you have promised of access to the Father is true. That we can be forgiven, that we can have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, and that access is granted to us through your Son, Jesus. Father, we ask now that you just use this time in our hearts and lives. Speak to us, Lord. Help us. There are those here this morning that are grieving, and we ask, Lord, that you would comfort them. There are those with us this morning that are going through problems that no one around them knows about nor understands. Would you, Lord, lift their burden today? Would you bring them comfort? We all need to be challenged to live for you in this world in which we have the ability to be a testimony for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to be the courage, have the courage that we need. Whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we give this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.